Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Biden's strongest criticism of Israel's behavior in Gaza, calling the actions of the IDF over the top, as Netanyahu doubles down in defiance of the U.S. president by calling for an evacuation of Rafah, the crowded last refuge for Gazans in the south. Joining us from a demonstration in front of military headquarters in Tel Aviv is Avram Berg, the son of Holocaust survivors who has been active in Israeli politics as a leader of the Israeli Labour Party and the One Israel Party. He was Speaker of the Knesset from 1999 to 2003 and is the author of The Holocaust is Over, We Must Rise from Its Ashes, and the Chairman of Malad, the Centre for Renewal of Democracy. Then we'll assess the Supreme Court's oral arguments in the Colorado case that removes Donald Trump from the primary ballot, in which the right-wing majority of justices went out of their way to avoid talking about insurrection in a case that was all about the January 6th insurrection and the insurrection clause in the 14th Amendment. Joining us is Dennis Aftergat, a former federal prosecutor and chief assistant city attorney in San Francisco, who has won cases of significance in the United States Supreme Court and the California Supreme Court. He currently serves as counsel to lawyers defending American democracy, and we will discuss his article at Slate, The Special Counsel's Biden Comments Were a Political Hit Job. Then finally, we'll examine the political ramifications of the special counsel's gratuitous partisan swipe at Biden over his age and memory, which is sure to be the centerpiece of the Republican 2024 campaign, which will also bring the focus onto Vice President Kamala Harris as the next president, should Biden win in November. Joining us is Chris Whipple a multiple Peabody and Emmy Award-winning producer at CBS's 60 Minutes and ABC's Primetime. He is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Gatekeepers, How the White House Chiefs of Staff Define Every Presidency, and The Spymasters, How the CIA Directors Shaped History in the Future. And his latest book is The Fight for His Life, Inside Joe Biden's White House. And he has an article at the New York Times, Biden Needs a New Narrative. And before we begin, I would like to thank our listener donors who keep background briefing independent, corporate and commercial free without paywalls or constant fundraising by making tax-deductible donations to our non-profit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. As we enter this fact-free and violence-prone election year, with much of the country under the cult-like spell of a deranged demagogue spewing constant lies while inciting hatred and violence, help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before our democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now from Israel is Avram Berg, who was the son of Holocaust survivors and had been active in politics as a leader in Israeli politics as the leader in the Israel Labor Party and the One Israel Party. He was Speaker of the Knesset from 1999 to 2003 and is the author of The Holocaust is Over, We Must Rise from Its Ashes, and the Chairman of Malad, the Center for Renewal of Democracy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Avram Berg. Pleasure. Well, thanks for joining us, Avram, and you've just been at a demonstration, I take it, at which uh, demonstrators were, in, in fact, in front of Netanyahu's residence, calling out no, the name... No, it was in front, was centered Tel Aviv in front of the uh, headquarter of the army and the Ministry of Defense. That's the actually the demonstration quarter of Israel. Right. 
And there was, of course, another demonstration in front of Netanyahu's residence yeah. um, calling out the names of the hostages on a megaphone. So what's your sense then of the mood in Israel? Polls indicate that Netanyahu is polling at about 15% approval, but nevertheless, he's in charge. And as long as the war goes on, he will be the prime minister. Is there any way to remove Netanyahu, which many people here in the United States are calling for, including Hillary Clinton in a recent interview? There are actually two segments to your question or two segments to my answer. The first is the general feeling is, I would say, public suffocation. Wherever you turn your eyes, something is not working. The government giving up on the hostages, the endless military maneuvers and operations that eventually lead to nowhere. The economic situation that was just downgraded during the weekend. Wherever you look around, it doesn't work, and we do not have, I will say, an eligible or credible government to help us going out of it. So one level is the level of public suffocation for some even despair. At the same hand, not uh, on the same hand, not the other hand, what you see is a government that the more you look into its expressions and its uh, uh, politics and its deeds, you have a feeling that they're getting more and more and more disconnected from the reality, like it's a government on the moon. I mean, one of the ministers on behalf of the government said during the weekend, I don't really see the relationship between the war and the government. And another one this more this afternoon said, the Minister of Finance said, ah, the Moody's downgrading of Israel just a political manifesto. So these people simply do not live in the same reality as the majority of Israelis. But is there a way, for example, on Thursday evening after the special counsel report came out with gratuitous attacks against Biden insulting him, and he was furious, and he had a press conference at which he was asked about what's happening in Gaza, and he said it's absolutely hideous what's happening in Gaza, and the conduct of Israel's military in Gaza is, quote, over the top. And that's about as far as Biden has gone in criticizing Israel and the IDF. And of course, in response, Netanyahu is upping the ante by calling the IDF to evacuate Rafah the last refuge of four Palestinians in the south of Gaza. So it's pretty clear that Biden is getting close to condemning uh, Netanyahu's behavior. Do you think that's going to happen, and what kind of impact will it have? Biden is an amazing individual and a fantastic president. Regardless of the uh, presidential campaign now in, uh, in the States, that in is in its middle when I look at his behavior, attitude, warmth, and humanity during the crisis of the state of Israel, I'd say we've never had somebody, uh, I, I, sorry for the non-English term, such a mensch at the top of the American administration. So for that, I will take it that the majority of Israelis will remember him fondly 
to the end of their life. Yet at the same time, Israel doesn't do a thing. Official Israel, right-wing, uh, fundamentalist Israel doesn't do a thing in order to save itself from itself. So it looks like the American administration led by Biden is doing everything to save Israel. Even the sanctions against these four hooligans uh, settlers is something to say to Israel, do it yourself. We don't have to do it for you. But you have a war, war criminals and you have people who commit atrocities against innocent Palestinians. Tame them, arrest them, take them to, to court. But if Israel doesn't move, the Americans are doing it for us. So you can say that in many senses, uh, moral-wise, uh, value-wise, military-wise, Washington is actually running Jerusalem. But does that mean, Abram, that Biden should go public to the Israeli public and go around Netanyahu if there's no way to stop Netanyahu on his current uh, trajectory where he will continue the war indefinitely because as long as the war goes on, he stays in power? You know, if I want to be uh, emotionally driven, I would say, President, please move in. Uh, we need you. Um, and if I'm full of vengeance, I would say, listen, just give uh, Netanyahu a bit of the recipe that he fed the former administration of Obama-Biden, coming to the Congress, I mean, speaking behind the back of the president, intervening, uh, interfering in the political process in America, supporting Mitt Romney rather than being away because it's not your political system. So I say feed Netanyahu a little bit of his own menu. But I don't think that's the case. Um, the Americans, when they have something, and if they have something in mind, I would say it's a triple something. The first is what's good for Israel, the way they see the historic covenant and the historic alliance between Israel and the United States of America. The second is to make sure that this uh, malfunctioning or not dysfunctioning government does not deteriorate the region into an all-against-all regional conflict. And last but not least, to put barriers between the region and the Ukraine-Russia uh, ongoing war. Because if Gaza will align with Lebanon, that will get together with uh, um, China-Iran, and eventually go with Russia against uh, Ukraine, all of the sudden from Gaza, you have the beginning of the Third World War. So the actions of the administration should be, A, what's good for them, what's good for the world, what's good for America, and only then, what's good for Israel. So do you think it might backfire? Is that what you're saying? If Biden made a direct appeal to the Israeli people that they, there has to be no. a change of government? No, I don't think it will backfire. I just think the right uh, order of priority is not just to celebrate on Netanyahu's shortcoming, but to do what is right for the world before doing what is wrong for Netanyahu. Of course, I want the president to come down on him. Of course, I want the president to go out public and say what kind of a prick is the Israeli prime minister. But I don't think it's the right politics. And uh, any president 
especially at the election year, and especially uh, with such a tight race in America, should do what is right rather than what feels good. So, but what can you do to help Benny Gantz? I mean, there's a serious possibility that the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank could collapse. There are are many other shoes that could drop that would be very detrimental to Israel and to security in the neighborhood. So just in closing then, Avram, is there a move that the American administration can take to save Israel from itself? There are many, many moves, and um, and I do not know which one of them is um, is really is really within the interest of the American administration. But I will say, listen very carefully to Senator Sanders when he when he took last month when the uh, when the Senate came back from the new year uh, from the new year, and he actually took a position saying. Why should Israel and many others give us report about the usage of American weaponry uh, vis-a-vis the values of the Americans, civil rights, human rights, etc.? Let Israel report to us. And I say the minute the Americans will put their mouth where the money is or will put their, ma- their heart where the weapons are and say American weapons cannot be used in any way but for pure self-defense, whatever is occupation and occupational, whatever goes for the oppression of the Palestinian people, whatever goes to denial of basic democratic birthrights of a collective, the Palestinian collective cannot be done with American technology, American financing, and American money. This in five days will put an end to the occupation because we saw in this war Israel survived five days and then without Uncle Sam could not continue the kind of vengeance trip that we are into it now. So America has a leverage over the right-wing Israel. The question is, does it have the courage to use it? Well, Avram Berg, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you very much, Ian, as usual. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And again, I've been speaking with Avram Berg, who's the son of Holocaust survivors and has been active in politics in Israel as a leader in the Israeli Labor Party and the One Israel Party. He was Speaker of the Knesset from 1999 to 2003 and is the author of The Holocaust is Over, We Must Rise from Its Ashes, and the Chairman of Malad, the Center for Renewal of Democracy. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the Supreme Court's oral arguments in the Colorado case to remove Trump from the ballot where the right-wing majority of justices went out of their way to avoid talking about insurrection in a case that was all about the January 6th insurrection.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Dennis Aftergaard, who's a former federal prosecutor and chief assistant city attorney in San Francisco, who has won cases of significance in the United States Supreme Court and the California Supreme Court, and he currently serves as counsel to Lawyers Defending American Democracy, and he has an article at Slate, the special counsel's Biden's comments were a political hit job. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dennis Aftergaard. Thank you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And of course, your article at Slate refers to the special counsel, Robert Hur's report on Biden's handling of classified documents, um, 360 pages. But what stood out was, of course, her saying that President Biden is a sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. And that was truly a stab in the back. Uh, and it was gratuitous, et cetera, which obviously I want to talk to you about. But there was also a significant uh, event uh, involving the law in the Supreme Court uh, last week with the Colorado case brought by the state of Colorado to disqualify Trump from the ballot based upon the January 16th insurrection. What I found extraordinary about those are arguments, particularly the attitudes and questions from the Supreme Court justices, including two of the liberal justices, was that the whole hearing was about insurrection. But every time anybody talked about the January 6th insurrection, uh, the justices tried to avoid it. And, and Gorsuch was quite obvious when somebody brought it up, one of the lawyers brought it up, he immediately cut him off. So what was going on there? It just seemed something was really deeply wrong when you're talking about an insurrection and yet you don't want to talk about insurrection. You've hit the nail straight on the head, as usual, Ian, straight on the head. But I don't I don't want to miss the lead here. And the lead to me is that strong activist lawyers got this case in front of the Supreme Court. Strong activist lawyers got the lower court to do the right thing, two lower courts, and the Secretary of State in Maine as well. They have said, they have found, based on voluminous evidence, that Trump engaged in an insurrection. Those are factual findings I don't think those are going to be disturbed by the Supreme Court. They're going to be in history's record. I could be wrong about that. They could find a way. They always can. But that's the extraordinary part of this case. We know from listening to the argument, and one is always cautious about predicting about uh, predicting results from arguments, but I'm going to say, Ian, we know what they're going to do. They're going to take one of the technical off-ramps that you described because they don't want to deal with that fact. There's one other thing I need your audience to hear, and that is all along, anyone who's watched this Supreme Court would not be surprised by their keeping Trump on the ballot. That's not a headline. What has been accomplished by strong activist lawyers is that they have put this ball in play in the Supreme Court and 
created the opportunity for the Supreme Court to try to establish its legitimacy when the case comes before it this week, Trump will file, you referred to the immunity case, the immunity, his immunity claim. And that is a very weak case. I would be surprised if the Supreme Court reversed the finding that Trump is not immune from prosecution. That's clear. And I wouldn't be surprised if the court did not take that case and sent it back quickly to the trial court. And that balancing, you know, about courts liking to split babies, that that balancing is the opportunity that strong activist lawyers have created for us to get Trump held to account by a jury in a court of law where facts matter. But the other way to see it, Dennis, is that the Supreme Court, and particularly the six conservative or right-wing justices, were behaving like almost all Republicans are nowadays about January the 6th. They're trying to forget it. They're trying to downplay it. They're trying to say it was Antifa and Black Lives Matter or it was no big deal. This has been going on, and it felt to me that the Supreme Court, the conservative Supreme Court justice were doing exactly the same thing. They were just trying to downplay and avoid the reality of what happened on January the 6th. And they're doing that in support of Trump. And Trump, of course, himself, after the hearing the other day, did a press conference, not that it was a real press conference, he just did a campaign stop and just filibustered and rolled over the press. But he went on about what a great day it was and how lovely it was and how it was full of love. And if anything went wrong, it was Nancy Pelosi's fault, et cetera, et cetera. So this is what's going on in the country. So I'm not entirely sure that the Supreme Court will, in fact, vote the way that you just said on the immunity case. I mean, they might do the opposite, which is drag it out which is what Trump's strategy is, and just uh, take the case but not rule on it for however long they can drag it out. That's still a possibility, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Um, And you're right uh, not to trust those six reactionary members of the court. We would like to have a court that was objective and would deal with insurrections. I have a strong hope It's only that that this opportunity has been created by strong activist lawyers who brought these 14th Amendment Section 3 cases. I lament, along with you, Ian, that this court may well make a dead letter out of the anti-insurrection provision of the 14th Amendment Section 3 which says that anyone who takes an oath to support the Constitution and engages in an insurrection cannot hold federal or state office. I'm, I, I fear that that will become a dead letter after this. But on my hopeful side, I think the chances are better than even, better than even, maybe 60-40 maybe two to one, that Jack Smith's case 
about the insurrection will be tried before the election. And then I also want to point out, Ian, that there's a very, very strong backstop in New York. That case, that's the um, election interference before the election case, the Stormy Daniels hush money payoff case, which was really election interference before the election. Um, that case is set for trial on March 25. If the Jack Smith's January 6th case doesn't go first, and it probably won't, there's almost no way it will. Um, and that's a strong case. And I believe Trump will be convicted there, and that will matter. Those lawyers are good, and they will argue that case as an election interference case, and the country will understand why it is important. That he shouldn't have got elected in 2016. <laughs> exactly. It right. was the front bookend of January 6th. January 6th. It was election interference, um, as I'm fond of saying, a tiger doesn't change its stripes. He was all about inter election interference in 2016 and in 2020, late 2020 and early 2021. So there's another case, of course, which is in many ways the most, most straightforward and should be the easiest case to win. And that is Trump's mishandling of classified materials to the point yeah. where he obstructed justice so blatantly yeah. and took all kinds of incredibly top secrets and used them as trophies and gave them away and told them other people, anybody that would listen as he bragged about them. God knows whether they ended up in the hands of the likelihood there were the Cubans working for the Russians have infiltrated Mar-a-Lago. Etc. I mean, the whole thing is a catastrophe for the intelligence community. And anybody you talk to in intelligence say that essentially all of those documents that he had, you have to assume that all those secrets are lost, and that could cost the country billions of dollars. So it's a very, very serious and lives case. in in lives, the lives yeah. of um, American sources and uh, the lives of American, you know, assets uh, through the discovery of. Uh, intelligence methods that those documents could have revealed. So the woman that's doing the handling of that case is obviously shown that she's t a total Trump partisan, Judge Eileen Cannon. She just made a ruling that was pretty outrageous that's upset Jack Smith in basically exposing the addresses and contacts for some of the key witnesses, including one of the people that worked at Mar-a-Lago that's turned state's evidence is working, cooperating with Jack Smith, and the likelihood that they'll get doxxed and attacked uh, is unbelievably high, because that's what happens to anybody that crosses Trump. He sicks the MAGA crazies under them. What's happening there? I mean, surely the 11th Circuit has to step in there. Is there any way to get rid of Arlene Cannon? I mean, you can't put that down to a mistake, can you, that she's an amateur, which she is. She's obviously uh, out of a depth, but still doing what she did just seems to be so outrageous. It wasn't a mistake back more than a year ago when she made a blatantly illegal ruling that held up the case when she said a special master should review the documents 
um, before there was any proceeding. It was just completely wrong. She got slapped down very quickly by the 11th Circuit. You are uh, asking exactly the right question, Ian. Uh, is there anything that can be done? And the answer is, in Jack, we trust. The time has come for him to pull the trigger on uh, the loaded gun that he has with all the evidence that he has now of her abject bias against the public and the government and for Trump, particularly in this highly sensitive matter that you have just identified, disclosing to Trump secrets and um, exposing those people to being doxxed and far worse than being doxxed. And I do not believe that Jack Smith will allow that to happen. He will not disclose the witnesses. Uh, he will not disclose the secrets without going to the 11th Circuit and asking for the case to be reassigned. They have done that more than once before with biased judges. They have already ruled uh, in an uh, indisputably clear way that they understand what is going on with Eileen Cannon. It's time to go. It's not time to be Merrick Garland on this kind of decision. Jack Smith is independent as a special counsel. He needs to represent us. He needs to go to the 11th Circuit. And he has started that, Ian. Uh, he has asked her to reconsider. And that is the stepping stone toward the 11th Circuit. She may reconsider, in which case he won't be asking to reassign her. If she doesn't, watch for it. So you mentioned Merrick Garland. His name is on the special counsel's 360-page report that just came out that was full of gratuitous attacks against Joe Biden, not just about him being a well-meaning and elderly gentleman with a poor memory, but also saying that you know he's got a sort of inflated ego that he collects stuff that he thinks he's obsessed with his place in history stuff that was completely out of bounds for a prosecutor that you're not supposed to get into personalities and psychoanalyze the subject of your inquiry or investigation you're supposed to deal with the facts but the report itself starts out with merrick garland's name it's in his name he got that report before anybody else did, just as Bill Barr got the Mueller report before anybody else got. And Bill Barr was able to completely mischaracterize the, the Mueller report to incredibly detrimental effect to the point where the public didn't realize what was actually in the Mueller report and how damning it was uh, exposing Trump and his ties to the Russians. To this day, so many people don't believe about Trump's ties to Putin because of what Bill Barr did. But Merrick Garland did the opposite. He didn't do a damn thing about it. He has his name on it right at the top, and yet he put it out there. So I think he's, he's the one that let us down. What do you think? I've got a lot to say about Merrick Garland. Uh, I, I, um, I agree with you. He let us down. The way he let us down was by picking uh, Robert Hur in the first place and David Weiss in the Hunter Biden case, uh, two prosecutors who are cowards. Uh, the Justice Department, um, you know, is known, uh, its whole reputation is staked on that phrase. Um, 
without fear or favor. These two prosecutors operate with fear and with favor, uh, these two special counsel. Um, but I, I'm going to come back to that because, again, I do not want to miss the lead here, Ian. And I totally understand your fury at Merrick Garland. The lead here is that Joe Biden did nothing wrong, that Joe Biden was innocent. That is the finding. And even her goes out of his way to make clear that Biden's cooperation shows an innocent state of mind. Trump's obstruction shows a guilty state of mind. He he contrasted the two uh, uh, would-be candidates for presidency in the way they behave. Trump's been indicted because he instructed. Biden has been exonerated because he cooperated. That's the way it goes in these cases. You cooperate to get documents back. And this happens all the time with high-level officials. They end up with, unknowingly, with uh, classified documents in their possession. When they cooperate, when they're discovered, Biden didn't just cooperate. He acted proactively. He, he told his lawyers, you go look for, for, for any documents, and if you find them, you return them. And that's what he did. He sat for an interview. His conduct is completely consistent with an innocent person. Now, if you want to get to um, shameful, Ian, I'm a former federal prosecutor, shameful prosecutorial conduct. Let's talk about Robert Herr and those gratuitous comments that he added. That makes me nauseated. Here's the American Bar Association standard for prosecutors. It says the prosecutor may make a state public statement explaining why criminal charges have been declined. That's this case or dismissed. But here we go, Ian. Must take care not to prejudice the interests of subjects of investigation and the Justice Department's own standards. Their prosecutor's manual say almost identically the same thing. You must be very careful not to prejudice not to harm someone who is not the reputation of someone who is not harmed. Robert Herr did just the same, just he did exactly that. And you know why that matters, Ian? It matters because prosecutors are so important to the rule of law. If prosecutors allow their judgment to be corrupted by political concerns, and that's exactly what happened here, we are done as a rule of law society because what that means is that anyone can be prosecuted for political reasons. What that means is if you are someone who speaks out, you can be prosecuted by a uh, a Justice Department that gets corrupted by someone like Trump. And that means that every one of us becomes afraid. Every one of us has to think about shutting up and criticizing. Prosecutors are very, very powerful. They have to steer clear of politics. And Robert Herr and David Weiss, uh, the prosecutor of Hunter Biden, did exactly the opposite. And they are undermining not only the Justice Department, but the rule of law. Don't get me started. Well, Dennis, we run out of time, but I just wanted to add uh, back talking about Merrick Garland is that his dithering in all of these cases that we're talking about, in particular the January 6th case, by going after the the mob that 
stormed the capital as opposed to the guy that told him to go there and fight like hell, otherwise you won't have a country anymore, letting him off the hook for, what, what a couple of years before he finally moved after the House had their inquiry that presented so much evidence to the public. We wouldn't be talking about all these cases being delayed, and that's Trump's strategy to delay to the point where they may or may not be heard until after the elections. And if Trump is, of course, wins the presidency, everything will go away. So that's what we're dealing with. Uh, I I agree with you. A strong attorney general would have done this quicker. I just want to add quickly, though, that there may have been a role by the FBI in this. And, uh, you know, we have guys like McMonagall, the head of the New York office, who was just uh, sentenced or dealing with Russians. And uh, we had a lot of people in the FBI who may have been slow walking this. And I'm not disagreeing with you because I think a strong attorney general would have overridden them. But we shouldn't miss that possibility that history will tell us about sometime in the future. Right. And people are already saying that what her just did and the press reaction and Biden's angry press conference on Thursday evening uh, about what her said about him is similar to the James Comey moment just before the election where Hillary Clinton blames Comey for her loss to Donald Trump. So I know we're out of time, Ian, but just for your consideration, you mentioned the press. The New York Times front page was loaded with articles about this. You would think that they had learned from 2016 and but the emails with Hillary Clinton. But they're trying for uh, expanding their audience to the middle and to the right. And it is really shameful. And if Trump is elected, they will pay the price in the loss of the First Amendment. Dennis Aftergat, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure, Ian. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Dennis Aftergat, who's a former federal prosecutor and chief assistant city attorney in San Francisco, who has won cases of significance in the United States Supreme Court and the California Supreme Court. He currently serves as counsel to lawyers defending American democracy, and he has an article at Slate, the special counsel's Biden comments were a political hit job. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the political ramifications of the special counsel's gratuitous partisan swipe in Biden over his age and memory, which is sure to be the centerpiece of the 2024 Republican campaign. Let's dance in sky, let's dance for a while. Haven't couldn't wait, we're only watching the skies. Hoping for the best, but expecting the worst. Are you gonna drop the bomb or not? Let us die young or let us live forever. We don't have the power, but we never say never. Sitting in a sandpit, life is a short trip. The music's for the sad man. Can you imagine when this race is won? Turn our golden faces into the sun. Raising our leaders, we're getting in tune. The music's played by the, the madman. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. 
And joining us now is Chris Whipple, a multiple Peabody and Emmy Award-winning producer at CBS's 60 Minutes and ABC's Primetime. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Gatekeepers, How the White House Chiefs of Staff Define Every Presidency and the Spymasters, How the CIA Directors Shaped History and the Future. And his latest book is The Fight of His Life, Inside Joe Biden's White House. And he has an article at the New York Times, Biden Needs a New Narrative. Welcome to Background Briefing, Chris Whipple. Good to be back. Well, thanks for joining us, Chris. And sure. I wanted to talk to you since you spent time in the White House talking to senior aides and with Biden as well. I want to discuss the political ramifications of the special counsel's gratuitous partisan swipe at Biden over his age and memory, which is sure to be the centerpiece of the Republican 2024 campaign. It's also going to focus on Vice President Kamala Harris's qualifications as the next president should Biden win in November, which is something that Nikki Haley is already hammering on on the stump. So... What's your sense then? I mean, first of all, do you agree that the Republicans are going to seize on this? Oh, yeah, I think there's no question about it, because after all, it is a real issue. Uh, There's nothing Biden or his team can do about the fact that he's 81 years old. I think, um, quite frankly, I think a a pretty sharp uh, mind, uh, considering uh, that he's 81, but we can talk more about that. But no question about it. I mean, age is going to be uh, an issue in the campaign. And it's clear that this is not something that is just in the imagination of uh, of Biden's media critics, as the Biden White House sometimes seems to think. They like to blame reporters for this. It's something that's on voters' minds. So it's a legitimate issue. And what about the focus on Kamala Harris? In other words, I don't know why she's so unpopular, but the sense is that they're going to hammer away at her suggesting that she will be the next president, and obviously the implication being that she's not qualified. Well, first of all, let's just, for openers, let's let's just stipulate that rumors of Joe Biden's senility are grossly exaggerated. I mean, this is a guy who obviously is well known for his verbal flubs and as we all saw just a couple of nights ago, he um, occasionally screws up the uh, the presidents of Mexico and Egypt. But, um, you know, who doesn't? Uh, you know, and I think the, the evidence, see, I, I spent two years writing this book on the Biden White House. Uh, and while I can't say that I was in the room with him and uh, doing a, a, a one-on-one interview, uh, I've spoken spoken to everybody who deals with him on a on a daily basis, and I just don't think there's any there there. I mean, in in terms of this notion that he's he's an addled, confused guy, it's, it's just not the case. He's functioning very well, um, extraordinarily well for somebody of his age. But why do you think Kamala Harris is fair game? Why is she unpopular? Well, uh, two two different questions. I mean, the, the answer to the first question is, uh, of course, it's it's legitimate to talk about Kamala Harris um, because, after all, Biden is the oldest president we've we've ever had, and will be 86 uh, by the end of his second term if he's reelected. So it's certainly appropriate to talk about Kamala Harris and whether she's qualified to step in. The um, but the second part of your question is that. 
she's been, uh, look, she had a rocky start. Um, I think she was, uh, I, I think she was overly timid and, uh, and, and perhaps intimidated uh, in the role as a, as the first black female vice president. She was, she took a lot of criticism as we all remember when uh, she didn't go to the border and she was accused of, of, of not having uh, gone there. You remember by Lester Holt in that interview and, and she, she had a rocky shakedown cruise as vice president. There's no question about it. I think she's grown into the role. I think she's found her voice on the subject of women's reproductive rights. And even in my book, The Fight of His Life Inside Joe Biden's White House, uh, which is, by the way, now out in paperback, uh, I write extensively about how she really stepped up in the in the sphere of uh, national security and uh, and and did a pretty impressive job, including uh, meeting with uh, Volodymyr Zelensky on the eve of the invasion of uh, Ukraine. So um, it's a, it's a mixed bag. I think she's growing into the role, but um, you know, obviously, it's it's she's fair game under the circumstances. Well. Is there any way, I mean, I spoke recently with Ben Steele at the Council on Foreign Relations, who's done a biography on Henry Wallace, FDR's vice president, and he argued oh, yeah. in an article. I know that story well. I wrote my senior thesis in college on uh, the Democratic Convention of 1944 when FDR dumped Wallace for Harry Truman. So anyway, Yeah, well, proceed. So let's go straight into that. Is there a possibility that not a chance that they not can do a, that to Democrats in Chicago this year? Absolutely zero chance, because, you know, this is a case where, first of all, it hasn't happened really in since uh, since Jerry Ford dumped Nelson Rockefeller back in the uh, back in the 70s. And it's not going to happen this time. Uh, you You just cannot say think that it's a good idea politically somehow to unceremoniously at the 11th hour suddenly dump the the your your vice president who when you owe your election to the most important constituency in the Democratic Party namely uh, African Americans just for openers politically it would be suicidal on Biden's part and I just don't think that that's that's the kind of guy Biden is um, I think Jerry Ford, frankly, I think maybe regretted having having dumped Rocky uh, back in the day. So it's, it's zero chance that that will happen. Well, of course, you're right that the most reliable constituency that the Democrats have are African-American women, and that would be an insult to them. So what can the Democrats do then, given what I mentioned, and this is what Nikki Haley is hammering away at on the stump, and Trump, of course, who's unrestrained in his venom and his crudeness, is likely to go even further. Well, yeah, but, you know, that, look, that the, the campaign is, the Biden campaign is ready for that. They've been, they've been expecting this. Um, and and so I, I think it's just something I have to deal with. I mean, I, I you mentioned that I I did an op-ed recently uh, for the New York Times in which I argued that um, that they really need to let Joe be Joe, let Biden be Biden, get out there and engage because you can't hide. I mean, the only the only way you can address 
an issue like this is by taking it head on, uh, not hiding in the basement, which, of course, he he was accused of doing during the 2020 election and, of course, had had good reason because of COVID. But he he will be out. He will be engaging. And uh, frankly, he probably should have done that Super Bowl interview on Sunday and which uh, he he evidently is not going to do. But I think he's he's going to be out engaging and he's got to take it head on and he's got to do it with humor. He should take a page from Reagan and the 84 debate against Mondale when he famously flipped the script and said he wouldn't exploit his his uh, opponent's youth and inexperience. He's got to really do it that way. And it, it'll come at some, some cost. I mean, it's a double-edged thing. Every once in a while, he's going to be out there doing what Biden sometimes does, which is confuse a couple of names. But I think when you when you look at the choice, and right up to now, all the polls have really been a referendum on Biden. Uh, the election, by contrast, will be a choice between Biden and Trump. And I think that the debate, the debates, which I think will happen, uh, are going to be, if not decisive, uh, really critical because ev- everyone is going to tune in to find out two things. Number one, has Biden got it? Can he, you know, is he is he with it? And number two is, is Donald Trump still a lunatic? And I think that the debates are going to answer those questions. And what about Kamala Harris? What can she do to indicate, even to take on the issue? You know, am I ready to be president? Well, I think all she can do is 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 do what she's doing, which is stepping up and and addressing. Uh, but certainly, she's she's going to be a surrogate for Biden throughout this campaign. She's going to be very visible, particularly on the subject of women's reproductive rights, which is obviously a real winner for the Democrats. Um, she's going to be out there talking about those two things that really um, made the difference in the 2022 uh, midterms, namely uh, women's re- reproductive rights and the threat to democracy that's posed by MAGA. And um, I think that, um, look, you know, we she's 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 quite capable and she may not have completely hit her stride yet, but I think she's getting better in the job all the time. So are you then saying, Chris Whipple, that Biden has really got to take on Trump in the re- in a real way? I mean, I'm astounded that anybody in this country and the world supports this guy because he's so terrible. You'd have to scour the, not just the United States, you'd have to scour the planet to find a human being worse than Donald Trump. I mean, he's ignorant, he's stupid, he's vicious, he's sadistic, he only cares about himself, he doesn't give a damn about the United States or anybody else, and he, he lies, I mean, it just spews a torrent of lies out. He did, the most recent press conference he did <clears throat> on Thursday evening was after the Supreme Court decision on Colorado was absolutely insane, and he was throwing crazy stuff out and blaming January the 6th on Nancy Pelosi uh, and what a wonderful, beautiful day it was and everybody was so full of love and and all this crazy stuff. And yeah. if you talk to anybody, if you talk to people that have been in the Oval Office in his tenure, who've seen him work up close and personal, they say it's alarming. He's so f- ignorant, incompetent, 
out of touch and in the case of wanting to shoot pregnant Mexican women in the in the legs crossing the border is sadistic I mean I could go on I know I am going on well you can and you can add to that whole litany uh, <clears throat> the fact that nobody cares about his age unlike Biden right and he's 77 years old but it's not an issue for him and so there's a there's an obvious double standard at work here and there's an obvious reason for it and the reason is that age does not affect what Trump is selling. I mean, Trump's brand is incompetence and incoherence. And, you know, mental acuity is not required. You know, I mean, if you can't play the game, it really doesn't matter if you've lost something on your fastball. You couldn't play the game in the first place. So, you know, Biden is selling competence and his ability to govern. And, you know, you need to have your wits about you to do that. So there's on top of everything else, there's a double standard here because nobody who likes Trump really cares uh, if he's if he's confusing Nancy Pelosi uh, and uh, Nikki Haley, because they that's what they love about him. They love his incoherence. Well, what does that say about the electorate then? I mean, have we become an idiocracy? Well, look, I think the polls um, at this stage of the race, um, this far out, are really a referendum on Joe Biden, and the election is going to be a choice. And I look, I'm I'm confident that as as they as the Biden campaign uh, throws everything they have at Trump between now and the election, that that choice will become clearer and clearer. A lot of people have forgotten. As I wrote in my op-ed for the Times uh, last week, a lot of people um, really don't pay any attention to politics until until the uh, it comes down to the to, to the election. And I think need to be reminded and will be reminded of what a not only what a disaster he was as president, um, but um, what a threat. How much worse a second term would be. So I, there's still a lot of time. And um, I think that choice will become clear, and and there's no reason to believe that the 2024 result will be any different from 2020. But, Chris, you know, you've been a senior producer at CBS's 60 Minutes and at ABC's Prime Tribe, and what about the press? I mean, the press does this Tweedledum and Tweedledee thing about balance and, you know, in the universe of discourse is only two equal and opposite answers to everything. And if you interview a Republican, you have to interview a Democrat. And if you interview a scientist on global warming, you therefore have to interview a global warming denier, et cetera. I mean, it's a crazy... Yeah, I don't think it's, I don't think it's been as, uh, as appalling as... Um, um, I, I have a different take on it. I mean, I, I think there's been a tremendous amount of really, really tough critical journalism about Trump, documenting everything you just laid out a little while ago. Uh, You know, the Atlantic did an entire issue that devoted to all the ways in which Trump uh, posed a threat to democracy and the rule of law. And so, you know, I don't think it's been quite as feeble as um, as you suggest. And one of the things that I think is um, is unfortunate in the Biden campaign is that they really do have this kind of siege mentality that, you know, every 
I suppose every incumbent president running for re-election is defensive and somewhat uh, thin-skinned. But I think it's especially true of Biden and his and some of his inner circle. They uh, they they like to blame it all on the New York Times. Um, <clears throat> well, it's, it's not it's not the New York Times. It, I mean, it's almost and I and I think that you saw that when he snapped when Biden snapped at the reporter, um, you know, and said, "Well, that's your." That's your characterization, or what? Uh, that's a mm-hmm. paraphrase I'm making now. Well, it wasn't her characterization. It's it's you know the polls show that people worry about his age, but right. they need to get over that. They need to get over that. Stop acting Nixonian, uh, you know, and snapping at the press, and um, and 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 do this with a sense of humor and and um, you know. I'm on the other hand, he. Biden, we know that he was he was really very upset about um, <clears throat> what the special counsel had said about his son Bo, and and frankly, that really was a political hit job by the special counsel, in my view. Right, but Trump is not a normal candidate, and this is not a normal election, and that's where I think there is this sort of breakdown. And and for example. It's it's true. The Atlantic does a really good article, tells you what how dangerous this guy would be, and if in effect bring in American. Not just fashion. an article; they did an entire entire right. issue of the magazine. Right, but mean. warning that he be, that will actually have a fascist regime in this country. I don't think the Republican voters and independent voters who might be swayed necessarily read the Atlantic. But if you looked at the press conference that he did the other night on the steps of after the Supreme Court ruling on on the Colorado case on the steps of yeah. Mar-a-Lago, he just rolled over the reporters. He didn't answer any of the questions. He used it as a campaign stop and said the craziest stuff. Just There's no way you could even keep up with the insane stuff he was saying. So how do you deal with that? Well, the way, look, the way I would deal with it, um, I'm, 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 nobody's asking me to, uh, to tell uh, the, the networks how to deal with this, but the way I, I, I would deal with it would be by taking um, some of that in in moderation. I wouldn't let him go for you know an hour of of unchecked um, delusional uh, stuff. But I I would take it in moderation and then immediately fact check all all of it. Um, you know I do I do I agree with you that it's it's, it's totally irresponsible to let him just uh, go for a, a half hour or an hour. Uh, of spewing uh, lies without <clears throat> without fact checking it. Um, that's that's what I would do. But you know, nobody's nobody expects Fox or uh, a lot of these other networks to do that. Well, Chris Whipple, I thank you very much for joining us. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks. And again, I've been speaking with Chris Whipple, who's a multiple Peabody and Emmy Award-winning producer at CBS's 60 Minutes and at ABC's Primetime. He's the author of the New York Times best-selling book, The Gatekeepers, How the White House Chiefs of Staff Define Every Presidency, and The Spymasters, How the CIA Director Shaped History in the Future. And his latest book is The Fight of His Life, Inside Joe Biden's White House. And he has an article of the New York Times, Biden Needs a New Narrative. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org 
where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next